0: about five years to get the data. When I received the data, my research assistant was a former Marine, and he said the data arrived in the same kind of secure case that his guns arrived in when he was at the front. Mm. Um, So it's all anonymized and de-identified. I mean, there's linkage, so we can link, we can see two claims belong to the same person, but there's no way to tell who that person is. They basically said it in a way that not only do we not tell who people are, but we can't really, we couldn't even if we were trying to be clever, sort of reverse engineer who these people are.
1: Welcome to Peer Spectrum,
0: where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners, experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl, Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mengan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route.
1: All right, welcome back. So if you could pick the ideal patient population, armed with the best knowledge, fluent in medical jargon, generally healthy and willing to comply with recommended treatments, who would you pick? Well, how about doctors? Even doctors may not be the perfect patients, but at least they should be able to outperform similar non-clinicians, right? Believe it or not, no research has actually been done comparing the care, compliance, and outcomes of doctors to comparable groups of non-physicians. For reasons we'll soon see, this is actually a pretty difficult question to tackle, but it's a very important question with broader implications. Today's guest is MIT economist Jonathan Gruber. He recently co-authored a study using a unique data source to examine just how good doctors and their family members are when they find themselves in the patient seat. Now, here's a little spoiler alert. Obviously, if these results weren't surprising, we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about them. That's for the first part of this episode. For the second, we're going to explore some of Jonathan's other work. Besides his 160 research papers, seven books, numerous awards, and prestigious appointments, there's also something else Jonathan is known for. He was one of the key advisors some have even called architects, although that's debatable, of Romneycare and Obamacare. Perhaps you've forgotten it's been a while, so let's see if this jogs your memory.
0: The political world is buzzing about this guy, this MIT economist named Jonathan Gruber. Who is this guy? This guy that Democrats are now claiming they barely know.
1: Some advisor who never worked on our staff. I don't
0: know who he is. He didn't help write our bill. But he was paid almost four hundred thousand dollars by the Obama administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, to be a consultant to help them write Obamacare. Okay, so Gruber is one of the guys that helped write Obamacare. So what? Well, This controversy began when this video came out from last year at the University of Pennsylvania, where Gruber was talking about the sneaky way in which Obamacare was written, so as not to make it appear that the requirement that you have health insurance or your employer provide you with health insurance, so that wouldn't appear officially as a tax. Lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever, but basically that was really, really critical to getting the
1: thing to pass. Now, if you've been listening to us long enough, you know Pure Spectrum, unlike CNN, is not your home for politics. There are plenty of other places you can go for that. Not that Keith and I don't have our own opinions, we just recognize our limitations. We aren't professional journalists, we don't pretend to be. And that's why we're going to leave the politics to them. Did we bring up Gruber's history and talk about it? Well, of course we did. There's no way we could skip this completely. In his own words, Gruber became a proxy for the intense debates that took place during the lead-up and passage of the ACA. Whatever you think about Obamacare or Gruber personally... He's an important figure and someone worth talking to. That's what we're going to do. And with that said, let's get started.
0: Uh, sure. So I'm a uh, professor of economics at MIT, where I've been for about 27 years. Uh, I've uh, worked for that entire time on issues around the financing and delivery of, of healthcare care in the U.S. Uh, and as a result of my interest in, area, interest in work in this area, I've been involved in a number of efforts at both the state and national level to try to implement, implement health care reforms, uh, most notably working with Governor Romney here in Massachusetts to design our ambitious health care plan, and then working with President Obama and Congress to work on uh, what became
1: Obamacare. So we're going to get into that uh, you know, probably in the second half of the hour here, because there's a whole lot to discuss. But... Really, what piqued our interest today was a recent paper in the National Bureau of Economic Research, and this is this is a working paper. So this is something you did with two other colleagues, and right. it's a really interesting question that you brought up. And one, give us you know a quick idea before we dive into it, what you were looking at here, and you know what what you were trying to uh, you know try to answer with this this research.
0: Sure. So this is um, work with uh, Mike Frakes who is a lawyer and an economist and a lawyer who is at Duke Law School, and Bapu Jena, who is uh, an economist and a doctor, who is at Harvard Medical School. So we have a uh, diversity of skills on this project. And what we're trying to get at was simply the question of um, whether informing patients uh, is good enough to solve some of our healthcare problems. Basically, a lot of people claim that... Uh, Really what's wrong with the U.S. healthcare is folks aren't sort of effectively shopping and, you know, shopping and searching across their options.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: that if they sort of understand or were informed about different options and, and how they work, that they would then make better healthcare decisions that could help address the healthcare problems in our nation. And we thought, well, what better test of that is there than to look at doctors? There's no one who could be more informed. Uh, and to ask, well, how do doctors do at getting the right level of care when they're patients? Uh and if it's true that the big barrier to getting using care appropriately in the US is information, then we should see that when doctors get that care, get care, they're getting it appropriately. But if it's if it's not true, if in fact the barriers to getting the appropriate level of care are one of many other things, ranging from financial incentives to malpractice considerations to other things, then uh even when doctors even when doctors are patients, they still wouldn't get the right level of care. Sure. And that was sort of
1: the motivation for diving in on the project. Well, I have a quick question before we get started on it, because this is actually something that's gotten a little press recently. I think there was an article about this in The Atlantic. That's how I, you know, uh, connected with it. But I'm always curious, you know, these kinds of questions, when you uncover something that's really right in front of us, but it's kind of contrary to our assumptions, it, If you'd asked me, you know, how are doctors as patients generally, and I'm not a physician like Keith, but I would have said, hey, you know, they're definitely going to be better informed. They're probably going to be more compliant if they agree with the diagnosis and the treatment. And if anything, maybe they're just more of a pain to deal with because they ask a lot more questions or they, you know, try to self-diagnose things. But other than that, I would have thought the opposite of what you found here. So... I'm just curious. You know, these kinds of research projects—was there? Did you have some sort of suspicion that this is what you were going to find? Did this come out of something else? I mean, what what made you want to question this? Um,
0: you know, I think we really went in pretty uncertain about what we'd find. I think uh, what got us excited about it was, quite frankly, this is uh, often as often the case with research—sort of a data-driven project in the sense that Mike. Uh, and I have another project using these data. We have a project we're quite proud of about using these data to estimate the extent of defensive medicine in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that project later if you want. And uh, we realized in doing that paper that, wow, these were the first data anyone ever used where we actually had a huge sample of doctors themselves as patients. Uh, so wouldn't that be neat to use that to look at how doctors behave when they're patients? We didn't really go in with a strong view one way or another. Um, I think we did go in with a concern that there'd be kind of two uh, two potential worrying stories. Uh, you know, one is you could say, well, maybe docs just get more care because they're worrywarts, uh, and the other is, well, maybe docs get less care just because they think they're superhuman. Yeah. Um, and so, what we thought was really important about this paper was to look both at under- and over-utilization of care simultaneously. If right. we just looked at one direction or the other, you could you could bring up one of those stories or the other. But the fact that we show that docs both overuse uh, non-essential care and underuse essential care uh, says that it can't be one of those two stories, but that basically docs just aren't getting this right. And it's, a, it's I'm not saying it's easy, it's a complicated problem, but it's too complicated apparently even for docs to get it right.
2: Right. Can you um quickly uh, uh, fill us in on on some of the methodology? How did you know that the communication of the information was was either standardized or well uh, well done um, and uh, what did you use in terms of uh, judges of of the outcomes of the care? How did you know that the utilization was effective or not
0: yeah um so basically it's a good question so essentially uh, what we did to, to address those problems is that we focused only on services where the medical community, and once again, one of our co-authors is the doctor, uh, viewed them as absolutely um, low value or high value. So things like getting a chest radiography when you're getting cataract surgery. There is no reason why you should be getting uh, a chest exam when you're getting cat cat, cataract surgery more generally is the whole set of pre-op extensive testing for very low risk surgeries that have nothing to do with that testing right those are examples of what's called low value care where literally zero percent of people should be getting it the flip is sort of high value care where uh you know the classic example being uh diabetics um getting their blood sugar checked or getting insulin on a regular basis There's, once again, zero chance that that shouldn't happen. That should always happen. So this way we get around subjective judgments about, well, what's good care and bad care and focus on the cases that the medical community has decided are are unobjectionable. And then we ask, okay, in these cases where the answer is obvious, where, you know, all diabetics should be getting these screenings and no cataract surgery should have chest radiographies, uh, what do we find when we look at doctors? And so by sort of, you know, on on the one hand, the downside is this is not, you know, we're not speaking to the most expensive, most common procedures. Uh, mm-hmm. The upside is we're trying to get rid of the ambiguity by focusing on the extremes.
1: Yeah, you're just trying to make a comparison. Well, let's talk a little more about the data set here, because according to your paper, virtually no research has been done on this. And that's really because we don't um, – you know, link job occupations to patient records, at least not in the United States right now. So tell us more about the source of data and the subjects in this study.
0: Yeah, so the source of data is from uh, the military health system, sort of an understudied aspect of the health system in the U.S. Um, Basically, this is for several million active duty military and their dependents we know about the VA, that's in the news all the time, mm-hmm. but actually many more people uh, get treated by the military health service. The VA is for people who have injuries incident to service, the military health systems for everyone else. Everyone is active duty and their families and retirees for their whole range of health care. It's a over $50 billion a year program uh, that is a major part of the U.S. healthcare care system, uh, but has not really been widely studied uh, and is wide and widely understood. Uh, indeed, interestingly, shortly after our study came out, if you look at your most recent issue of the Health Policy Journal, Health Affairs, it's the first time I've ever seen an entire issue dedicated to this healthcare system. So there's now attention being focused on it, but there wasn't before. And uh, this is a system where individuals can get care either on military basis or from private contractors that are um, that are contracted with the military system. And in particular, the data with this system allows us to see, uh, allows us to the identifiers of the doctors treating patients on a military base, but then allows us to follow those doctors when they themselves are patients. So it's a really unique set of data in that sense.
1: So I've worked in military hospitals, is a, well, defense contractor really, but I would hardly consider myself an expert on this. Um, as far as I understand it, the military health system is really like a closed ecosystem. I mean, occasionally you can seek care in a private hospital if it's on unavailable on post or if you're overseas, but it really is kind of isolated from the rest of the country and they have their own healthcare, um, insurance plan called TRICARE, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's isolated, it's not isolated, it's isolated in the sense that about half of the people get care on the base through what's called military treatment facilities. And those are really their own little ecosystems of care. They're, they're little separate, you know, single payer healthcare systems. Uh, but about half people actually get care through the same kind of doctors and hospitals that you and I use. Uh, the military health system actually purchases that care uh-huh. through a contract with, uh, with private health insurance companies. Um, and so in that sense, it's more common than, uh, than not. But what's interesting about this system, and I'm actually working on this in other research, is that it's a sort of fascinating mix of sort of single-payer uh, system and, and and the use of sort of private health
1: care. Sure. Not to mention that malpractice isn't really concerned. This is actually in the news right now because there's a soldier at Fort Bragg who's in the middle of a—well, he is not in the middle of a lawsuit because they're not allowed to sue if they're in the military, mm-hmm. but they're looking—I think they're looking at legislation to, you know, address this. Um, it's, it's you know, a story off, off basis here, but there's just a lot of no, differences. No,
0: no, actually, not. Because that was why I got into this project. Oh, really? Was, uh, Yeah, so there's a long-standing question in health economics of how big is defensive medicine. So mm-hmm. we all talk about complaints about the malpractice system, but actually the malpractice system itself is tiny. Total malpractice spending is less than 0.1% of U.S. healthcare spending. The reason we think malpractice is a big deal for U.S. healthcare is because of the prospect of what's called defensive medicine. The idea that doctors will provide extra care because afraid of getting sued. And it's hard to study that because any doctor can be sued. But as you pointed out, there's actually a set of doctors that can't be sued, which is if you're active duty military getting treated on a military base, you can't sue. But it turns out if your wife or if your spouse gets treated by that same doctor on that same base, or if you get treated off the base, you can sue. So it sets up sort of a natural experiment to study the effect of defensive medicine, which is to compare those who are active duty getting care on the base to their spouses who are getting care from the same doctors but can sue, and to care off base where folks can sue. And we actually studied that. That's why we got these data. Over about a five-year period, we obtained these data. And what Mike Frakes and I found in a recently published article is that when patients can't sue, they get treated about 5% less intensively. The defensive medicine is real.
1: Interesting. It's not
0: huge, but it's real. All
1: right, since uh, we're off track would, for a second here, exactly. i got to ask um, so, the dependents of uh, soldiers who can sue, are the rates of malpractice litigation similar to the private sector, or are they? Uh... We don't really
0: have that. Okay. We don't really have that data, but we know they can sue and they do sue. Uh, so, essentially, you've got a, a sort of a treatment and control here. The treatment is the, is, is the dependents who can still sue, the control is the active duty you can't sue. And what you find is when you can't sue, uh, you get treated a lot less intensively, or about 5% less intensively. And it's mostly driven, not surprisingly, by getting many, many fewer diagnostic tests. Very so basically, uh, the people who can't sue get a, lot le- get a lot fewer diagnostic tests. And overall, it lowers their health care spending by about 5%. And most importantly, with no evidence of more adverse outcomes.
1: And military doctors are on salary, there's no variable compensation for RVUs or production, right?
0: Right. But once again, what's kind of cool about this is we can then look at, if it's about the military doctor's compensation, that should affect both the uh, treatment of the active duty patient and the dependent. So it really isn't just about the compensation, it's about the fact that when they they can't get sued, they don't do as much stuff. So it's really Mm. quite striking. And uh, that was sort of the reason we got this data. And then once we had the data, we realized, wait a second, we've got a bunch of patients who are doctors here. Uh, let's just ask answer this other question.
2: It's fascinating.
1: It is. Well, let's talk about who you studied in this. Uh, it wasn't everybody in the military. Um, give us an idea specifically of who you were looking at.
0: Yeah. So for this this, la- this latest study on doctors as patients, we compare uh, officers who are not doctors. Doctors are typically officers, so to get sort of a comparable population, we look at, uh, we compare the treatment uh, received by doctors when they're patients to other officers when they're patients Mm -hmm. as a way of getting sort of comparably uh, sort of healthy populations.
1: Yeah, that answers my question because I was wondering why you didn't choose enlisted, but that makes sense. And then you also looked at dependents from these officers, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I mean, the concern is, look, even with that comparison I laid out, maybe doctors are just differentially healthy. You know, maybe some these, maybe they're differently healthy than other officers. So we do is we say, well, that shouldn't apply that necessarily to the dependents of doctors, the dependents of other officers. They should be pretty equally healthy. So, but once again, if if it's really bad information, the dependents of office of doctors should get more of the appropriate care than dependents of of other of other officers. So we also look at the dependents as well as the doctors themselves.
1: Well, so you looked at, when you talked about high-level care and, and uh, low-level care, as you defined it, you know, these include all sorts of observations, C-section rates, preoperative testing, medication, adherence. Take us through a few examples here of what you looked at and what you found.
0: Sure. So um, so uh, let me actually take a second pull up the paper. One second, sorry. Sure. Uh, uh, okay, so so we, we look at what we call... Uh, Low value and high value care. So basically, for low value care, um, uh, this is things like, for example, cesarean sections. Now, cesarean sections is a bit tricky because we're not saying there should be zero cesarean sections, but we know there's massive overuse of cesarean sections. The rate in the U.S. is about twice the recommended rate.
1: And recommended and by so, what? The World Health Organization, CDC. What what, what benchmarks exactly. do you use? Okay.
0: The World Health Organization. Gotcha. So we look at uh, what's called primary cesarean delivery. So that gets rid of all the cases which are sort of clear cases for cesarean delivery like breach delivery or multiple deliveries or previous C-sections. We look at only other deliveries where C-section rate should be quite low. Um, And then the other source of low-value care is preoperative care for low-risk surgeries. So basically there's a definition of low-risk surgeries and we also create our own definition which is surgeries where almost no one ever dies. Mm -hmm. And uh, and for those purposes, uh, there's really no uh, strong case for a large set of preoperative testing. So that's the uh, so that's the other uh, the other low value care. Then on the high value care side, we look at test. We look at uh, a one A1, hemoglobin A1C testing for diabetics and retinal eye exams uh, for diabetics. And similarly, we look at protocols for testing for cardiovascular care. Uh, that are identified by the HEDIS organization. Uh, we also look at medication adherence and whether dependents get vaccinated or immunized. So it's a set of sort of really extreme cases of low value and high
1: value care. By the way, uh, out of curiosity, in the military system, the, the the standard of care there is it really the same as the you know the civilian system? You're going off of you know American Medical Association or specialty association guidelines. Is it? Uh, are there differences in the military with guidelines? You know, you know, command decisions from superior officers. I mean, it, is there any real difference there? Basically, that you've seen. The
0: only, the only fundamental difference is that relative to other healthcare systems, there's one extra objective in the military, which is military readiness. So they have the same triple aims as all other healthcare systems, and there's no explicit reason why they get different levels of recommended care, except that there's one additional aim, which is that people be ready for deployment. Um, and uh, there's no reason, once again, that's why you could argue that, for example, because of that, uh, you know, they, they might overtreat people. Uh, but there's no reason why that would affect doctors relative to uh, other officers.
1: Sure, sure. There's one other difference I remember. I know approvals for new technologies and products are a little different because they'll try things out in the field for emergency care. That's a different pathway than the FDA approval. But anyway, it has nothing to do with this. I just remember.
0: Yeah, no. once it. again, that's why you sort of don't just want to look at doctors in a vacuum but compare them to other officers. Makes uh, sense. For comparison. So the idea is to, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people might be treated differently under the military health system than under other health systems. But by by comparing doctors of officers, we're trying to sort of control for that.
1: So, what did you find?
0: Uh, we basically find that uh, in most cases, there is literally no difference between how doctors get treated and other officers get treated. And when their difference exists, it's tiny, uh, always less than about twenty five percent of the gap between the appropriate level and what officers get, and typically much smaller than that. So basically, the bottom line is doctors don't look in aggregate meaningfully different from non-doctors in both their receipt of low-value care and the receipt of high-value care.
1: Keith, I'm going to throw a question at you. I mean, did that surprise you as a as a as a surgeon clinician? Um,
2: not, yeah, not to, not totally. I mean, it, to be honest, um, uh, I found that the uh, the doctors what when I would treat them or the families of the doctors were sometimes the the hardest to get to understand the information. So we didn't, um, they didn't ask for special care. We sort of often went out of our way to, to keep away from special care. Um, Did you find orthopedic
1: or neurosurgeons struggle with that more? No, I'm just kidding.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going into that <laughs> mind um, It might be interesting, Jonathan, to ask though, if it was, if there was any um, uh, effect according to what the rank of the, of the, um, the patient was, because uh, we do have a phenomenon, and I'm sure your physician uh, colleague mentioned it, of the VIP care, that you end up with people coming in and they get extra studies because you're so worried you're going to make a mistake or lead them someplace else that they actually get too much care in that setting. Did you look at that? Did you know? Uh, is that something you um, you uh, brought up or uh, you could look at at all?
0: That's what we could look at, and we certainly we controlled in the analysis for for rank. So right. we're, we're comparing people, we're comparing doctors to other officers of the same rank. Okay. So once again, I I think that handles that. Uh, and once again, there's the question: of if they're going to be extra careful, why wouldn't they get more high value care too? Right. Uh, sure. Careless on the low value care, and you know, and 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 also careless on the high value care too. Yeah.
2: Well, is there anything from these studies that you can tell? Where is the disconnect? Um, I mean, the the assumption is that there's that they're, that they're not getting the what quote optimal amount of care, whatever that optimal amount is. We're just saying it's the same amount of care. Um, what? Where is that disconnect? In in um, in uh, why they're not? Why why the numbers don't quite add up?
0: Uh, I think because the bottom line is. Healthcare is complicated, and what it's two two reasons. One is it's complicated, even for doctors, and two is that what drives the receipt of these services is largely institutional and uh, compensation factors and not patient knowledge. And that basically, when you're a doctor, you just do what your doctor tells you. and basically, that um, if I think the main policy implication is, if we're going to really change the system, we can't rely on just informing people better. We need to change the system from the bottom up and get into, you know, get into the delivery of care, not just the information patients have. Right.
1: And then, uh, you know, something curious. You know, you looked at vaccination rates, pediatric vaccination rates. Um, those were comparable between the two groups, but are there if different? They
0: were a little bit. I mean, doctors, dependents of doctors, did a little bit of that better on vaccinations, but once again, like. 10% better. Interesting.
1: Uh, so I mean better. Is there any difference that you saw in vaccination rates in general population, civilian population in the United States, or? Uh, I, didn't okay. I didn't look at that. Okay. Just another question about this data set. So when you request something like this, you mentioned there's unique identifying numbers for each patient, each uh, provider, it makes it easier to study this. Um, is this provided to you anonymized? Do you have to do that yourself? are there restrictions on what you can research and do? I mean how, do, how does that work when you get your hands on a you know, really oh, valuable yeah. tool like this?
0: There are huge restrictions. This is uh, uh, unbelievably challenging data. It took about five years to get the data. Wow. It actually arrived. I had that when I received the data, I um, my research assistant was a former marine and he said the data arrived in the same kind of secure case that his guns arrived in when he was at the front. No kidding. Um, so it's all anonymized and de-identified. I mean, there's linkage, so we can link... We can see two claims belong to the same person, but there's no way to tell who that person is. Sure. Uh, so we don't get, like... And and it's basically run through a process to make sure that we can't reverse engineer. You know, they don't give us exact birth date. They don't give us exact location. They They basically said it in a way that not only do we not tell who people are, but we can't really, we couldn't even if we were trying to be clever, sort of reverse engineer who these people are.
1: And, you know, if you, I mean, are you allowed to use this for any research at all? Are there things that the military would prefer you not look at? Like, for example, differences in care by rank? Every, I mean, research, every research
0: project has to be approved by the, by the military.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Have they ever told you no on anything?
0: Uh, we've only asked so far for the two which was the demil- which the malpractice study and this study. Uh, so uh, we're two for two, but uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know that that means we are always, we'll always get a hit.
2: You're yeah. pushing your luck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so that took five years to get it. Once you have it, you know, you could have to go through the whole process again to get any updated records, I would imagine, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. So fortunately, this second project, we just used the same. We just repurposed the data we already had for the first project. Uh, I think it would be, I'm not sure, I'm, I, I I. have enough time left before I retire to try to get a new set.
1: Huh. <laughs> well, so your research here brings up some, some bigger questions too, and that's, as you defined it, the upper bounds of the effectiveness of patient education. And, you know, this is more your thoughts on this, but you, that's all we hear today. You know, if we could just get patients you know, more time with their doctors so they could understand it better. Better education, get them up to speed. You know, we could, you know, you know, make an impact on compliance, whether it's from taking their medications to post-operative care after surgery. You name it. But you're you're putting out the question that maybe this isn't so. Um, give us your thoughts about that and what else we can learn from this this study. Yeah, I mean, I
0: wouldn't take this study to say it's bad to give patients information. I think. Patients should be more informed about their options, and I think these are important decisions that patients should be involved in. I think the notion that that's going to substantively help with the high and rapidly growing cost of healthcare in the U.S. is just wrong. Uh, I think that basically, if we're going to, that we need to. Well, I think more information is great. We need to not be uh, overly optimistic and saying, well, we can solve all our problems with this healthcare by just giving more information. I think many people are sort of. Way too optimistic about the role of information uh, in solving our healthcare problems. I just don't think that it's enough.
1: Yeah, not to mention there's a lot of businesses. there's um business focuses on that. I mean, a lot of money you made in patient education. So a lot
0: of effort. yeah. And, and and once again, I don't. It's generally helpful, I think, to educate patients. Uh, but I think the notion that it's going to uh, fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare in the U.S. is just wrong. Sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Keith, anything else you wanted to touch on or questions?
2: No, although um, I do think that the, uh, the question of information is a really good segue to uh, the other work that you did, you did in the policy, both in Massachusetts and the United States. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the, the, the part of, of um, the Romney Care, if you will, or the Affordable Care Act that people don't talk about, which is the information access and the information sharing and i'm wondering as you were working on this study did that come into your mind that that really this is a system where the information is all there you can you really can share it doctor to doctor and yet it really isn't making much of a difference in the um, parameters of care
0: yeah i mean it's an interesting question that wasn't really part of Romney care Romney care was really more just about getting people health insurance coverage
2: that's true there
0: was a debate about the expansion of electronic medical records and that was really The big boost there came under the Obama stimulus package. Uh, A large part of the spending in the stimulus package during the recession was actually helping get doctor's offices hooked up to new electronic medical record systems and get better sharing. We're still really far away from the ideal outcome on that. It's amazing how backwards, I mean, I'm sure you and many of your listeners know about you know, every time you go to the doctor, you get the same damn information over and over again about your medical history and things like that. Why can't we just give it once and have it be up in the cloud forever? And, uh, but we're still very far away, but that, I think, to your specific question, there's been some studies of how better, whether better electronic medical records actually improve healthcare delivery, and the answer is, once again, it seems pretty small. Uh, the effects are mixed. There's not a really consensus that, medical, better uh, electronic medical records are going to really improve the delivery of healthcare in the U.S.
1: And the same goes for online tools like surgeon scorecards and rating systems for hospitals, right? They're, they're not very well utilized.
0: They're not. So this is another area I work in, uh, which is sort of consumer information. I think if you look at consumer, in, any source of sort of cons- information to consumers is just not really well utilized. Um and, uh, and that, be it surgeon scorecards or tools where you can shop and find the lowest cost provider or tools to help people choose their health insurance plan. Basically, consumers, no matter how simple you seem to make them to use, consumers just don't seem to want to use them and they don't seem to make a big difference.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So, Jonathan, back to Romney Care and Obamacare. Um, so many other people have defined your role for you. Whether it be on the twenty-four hour news, news networks or all the way up to President Obama or Speaker Pelosi, get let's hear it from the horse's mouth. I mean, help us understand your role in the in the reform in Massachusetts and then the ACA as you saw it.
0: Sure. So basically, um, my role in Massachusetts was uh, sort of serendipitous. I had for uh, under a different for a different reasons, so sort of developed a basically a computer model of the costs and benefits of different alternatives to health care coverage expansion in Massachusetts. And when Governor Romney decided he wanted to seriously consider trying to get to universal coverage in Massachusetts, he asked me, he and his team asked me to use my model to help them understand the alternatives and sort of design a program to get to universal health care coverage, which which I did. Then when, then when the legislature was then turning that into legislation, I then worked with the legislature to help sort of essentially, you know, be what what the Congressional Budget Office is for national legislation. It's what's called scoring. It's essentially saying, okay, you want to create this policy. That's fine, but making a policy like this involves a million different choices. You know, how generous should it be to people and uh, uh, how high does the tax have to be to pay for it, et cetera. Those are all choices which should be informed by data. And essentially my role was sort of the data guy, was to say, okay, how are different structures of this program going to work in terms of what it's going to cost and what it's going to do. Um, And then having done that, once the law was passed, I was asked to be on the connector board, which was essentially the implementing body for the law. Uh, The law in Massachusetts was pretty vague. Uh, It said things like healthcare should be affordable, but didn't define affordable. Hmm. Uh, And so this connector board, of which I was one of 10 members, was in charge of essentially turning this sort of vague implementing legislation to an actual law, and so I got to do that. And then um, that gave me a lot of experience both on sort of designing and implementing these laws. So when President Obama was moving towards Obamacare, a number of people on his team are people I'd worked with in the Clinton administration. I was worked in the Treasury Department during the Clinton administration. A number of those same people worked with President Obama. So they asked me to come in and sort of play a similar role of kind of being the modeler of kind of saying, okay, what are the different alternatives going to cost? and how can we make them work and then um largely most of the work was actually done in congress in the senate finance committee and so i worked with the senate finance committee to sort of play that same role of sort of numbers guy so the 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 short version i was is i was the numbers guy uh for thinking about different alternatives of getting to universal coverage what they would cost and what they would do
1: so yeah let's stick on the aca here i mean no matter what people think about it and not our purpose here to offer our opinions or have a debate about it. I mean, there's plenty of other places to go listen to that, but there's a lot that those of us out here outside of Washington, outside of policymaking, just don't know and don't see. Give us an idea of what it's like being in these meetings and the forces, you know, pushing on you, because there's political realities too. And in the time we have left here is not enough time to discuss the whole thing, but give us an idea of what, what's, what happens during these meetings and what some of the bigger mes- misconceptions there are that many of us have about how this process works?
0: Yeah, I think, and once again, politics is changing and getting worse. So, you know, yeah. I, I, I'll speak from the perspective of, of when I was involved. You know, a decade ago feels like a long time now. But basically, I think the surprising thing for you involved in this is how much data and facts matter. Policymakers and really their staff, you know, so, to, to, uh, sorry, two important things. One is how much EDFX matters, The other is how much staff matters. So look, these people, particularly the senators, they have a lot of different things they're doing, and they don't have time to get into a lot of these details. So the staff really does a lot of the groundwork. The staff are the sort of key folks. I, I one time had a U.S. congressman in my office, you know, from the House of Representatives, who said to me when he died, he hoped he came back as a Senate staffer because they have the real power. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, the staff really do the work. And the staff are hungry for facts and data. They're really, you know, uh, in Washington, a good number is worth a thousand words. And basically that's surprising is that, you know, and pleasing to me as a nerd, is that basically data and facts do matter in these debates. And so I think, the you know, the lesson is that they matter. Now, what happens is the staff come to you and they say, we want to know a bunch of stuff that will help us make a smart decision. They then take that back to their bosses and then that gets traded off against political factors and I'm not in the room for that. So basically, the frustrating part of a job like mine is you sort of give them this evidence. You say, here's options A, B, and C. Here's the pros and cons. And then they go off and they come back and you read in the paper they've done the following. And you realize it might not be what you wanted or what was best, most uh, recommended by by the evidence, but it uh, but it still um, you know that's where the politics comes in. So in some sense, you're not. I was not really in the room for you know when the sausage actually gets made, which is the political trade offs. But in terms of all the, ing- I sort of provide the ingredients to go into the sausage and work with the sort of sous chef on kind of you know creating that, getting the sausage set set up, and then uh, then I leave the room and then the chef comes in and they sort of figure out what to, how to finalize it.
2: When you started working on the, um, the project, did you have an idea of what uh, Obamacare was going to look like and um, how did that the final product that you, well, at least the, the part where you put all the ingredients together, how did that change over the course of working on uh, the process? Yeah,
0: I had a great idea because recently it was Romneycare. You know, someone said it's yeah. Romney Care with three more zeros. I mean, it's basically <laughs> the Affordable Care Act is basically the national version we did in Massachusetts. So we had a lot of ideas of what it looked like. That said, we had a good idea of the framework, but the details were very different. Um, and basically that's where a lot of my time and effort went, which is, okay, how do we translate this broad framework into details? You know, for example, how generous do we make it to people at – 200% of the poverty line versus 250% of the poverty line. You know, how do we, how high do taxes need to be to pay for this? Uh, stuff like that. So the details were very different. I think, you know, and the details ended up in many ways different than I would have anticipated, but the broad framework ended up exactly where sort of I thought it would be. Um, and uh, so that was very validating.
1: So how much time do you think you actually spent? Because you do have a day job. You're, you know, an economist and... Uh, and- on the academic faculty at MIT, um, how much time did this take away from that?
0: I would say it took at its peak a lot, um, you know, uh, during the prime time of working on the portal character, fortunately was on sabbatical, so that uh, helped, um, uh, but, you know, I would say at, at its peak it was taken, you know, probably over decent stretch, took about a quarter of my time, uh, was just on this activity, which is a lot.
1: And how many other economists, like you serve in this role, I mean, how many people are in these initial meetings before it's filtered and taken up to the, you know, to the policymakers and, and, and oh, I workers? mean, tons. Okay. Tons.
0: I mean, people they consult. I mean, once again, the key arbiters are the staff, are the, the staff, they're, but they're seeking input from many, many parties. I was relatively unusual in that, you know, I played a different role in many of the policy, typically the role I'll play in many policy things. I'll get a call and say, hey, we're thinking about policy X, you know, riff on the pros and cons, I'll riff on the pros and cons, and I'll say thanks, and I'll never hear back. This was very different. This was kind of, I was playing a unique role of kind of being the numbers guy, as I said. That's pretty unusual. I was sort of the only person playing that role. Um, And then ultimately, that role gets played by the Congressional Budget Office, as it should. I mean, they're the official scorers. So once it got close to legislation, they said, okay, thanks, John, we're done with you. Now we're going to go to the guys who really count, which is the Congressional Budget Office. I was sort of if you will a pre CBO. CBO is an organization that is overwhelmed and they can't you can't go to them and say, Okay, we're thinking about a hundred different versions of this law, tell to each of you the hundred will cost. That was sort mm-hmm. of my job. And then once they sort of finalized it to what they want the law to be, then they went to CBO and I was sort of done. So I think, you know, I played a relatively unusual role relative well, to other experts on relative to the role I've played in other sort of policy debates.
1: Alright, here's a big question. We're getting towards our final ten minutes here, but we're nine years Into this, um, just a 30,000 foot, you know, zoom out here, how do you think things have done and what uh, has surprised you, you know, since the rollout that you didn't expect?
0: Uh, I think basically I would summarize the Affordable Care Act as an enormous policy success and political failure. Uh, The policy success is we've covered, uh, we at peak covered about 20 million people with health insurance. Uh, We did so uh, in a way that was below budget uh, and uh, saved, and by recent estimates from a very exciting new working paper that's out, saved tens of thousands of lives uh, by providing this health insurance coverage. So I think the law was an enormous success in what it was trying to do. Um, Interestingly, I think politically it really was a failure and sort of cost the Democrats a couple of rounds of Congress and was a big factor in in Trump winning the presidency. And I think that's because um, really, uh, in some sense, uh, a misjudgment, which is the basic idea of the Affordable Care Act, was to essentially leave the 80% of Americans who had health insurance coverage work worked for them alone. And we largely did that. For the vast majority of Americans, they were left alone. The problem is they were convinced they weren't left alone. Right. They were convinced that, in fact, somehow Obamacare is making their life worse. And it wasn't. But somehow they got convinced. So we thought we had a rough calculus of kind of, look, 80% of people will be neutral. Roughly speaking, though, about 17% winners and 3% losers. And we figured, well, the math on that's pretty good. What we missed was the 80% of people got mad that they they thought they were losing when, in fact, they weren't. And suddenly you had a lot more perceived losers than winners, and that led to a lot of political uproar against the law. Uh, and I think that was really sort of not something that
1: was foreseen. Well, a quick question here. Didn't want to spend too much time talking about this, but we're going to get a lot of emails if we don't bring it up, because if you Google your name, there's still a lot of <laughs> videos that come up because there was something else that happened during this time period. There were some audio and video recordings of some of these meetings, and you made some comments. Well, first of all, give us an idea very quickly what, what was involved here, just as a reminder, because, you know, we're almost sure. a decade out. And, then...
0: and, that, and, and, and as I've said officially in congressional testimony, I'm both embarrassed and sad about this, but what happened was uh, I was in an academic meeting speaking to a bunch of academic colleagues, and I made a sort of arrogant and glib comment about kind of, look, you know, when you pass a law like this, uh, you don't make every aspect transparent because, you know, basically it's hard and complicated, and I glibly said, you know, I don't know why it is. Maybe it's because of the stupidity of the voter. Uh, I don't know why it is, but whatever the reason is, you don't make everything transparent. And that was an unfortunate, really. Just I regret saying that. It was a terrible, it was a stupid, quite frankly, thing to say. Uh, and uh, it got picked up, uh, and I got called out on it appropriately. Unfortunately, got blown out of context because I was not a politician. I was not under any oath or under any. You know I, I was not sort of anything where sort of I thought my speech kind of you know I, I was not sort of subject to any public oversight in any way. I was just a consultant, and basically uh people blew up my role and blew up my comments into saying well this is a this is a reason not to like Obamacare, which it wasn't. It was just an incorrect thing I said, which I shouldn't have said, but it has no larger aspects for Obamacare and certainly wasn't worth the incredible blowback, you know, the death threats and the sort of miserable aspects of my life it created.
1: So there was some of that as well, huh? Oh, it was awful. It
0: was awful. And basically, Oxy for a lot of people didn't like the law, jumped on this. They jumped on on, on me, and this is sort of a symbol of what they didn't like about the law, which was really sort of unfortunate. You know, we could have legitimate debates about the law and what's good and bad about it. But, you know, the fact I said something ill-informed and arrogant, uh, it's neither here nor there for the law or how
1: it works. Well, you know, I watched some of these and I remembered, you know, it was coming back to memory when I was watching these and every single channel, no matter what it was, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, PBS, even, I mean, they were all, they all wanted a piece of you, right, Jonathan? And you could have just said, you know what, I'm not a politician. I'm going back to my research, walk away from this, but, you, uh, you kind of stepped into the re- arena, as it were, and you went on every one of these channels and talked to them. Why did you do that? I, I'm curious, you know, because in my personal opinion, going on a small five or ten minute clip on one of these 24-hour news networks is not enough time to discuss anything, and it could certainly, ma- you know, make things worse for you. I mean, what was your motivation to jump in?
0: My motivation was really quite simple, actually, which is um, essentially... What's great about the Affordable Care Act is if you understand it, you like it. It's really quite, it's a wonderful situation whereby explaining something clearly in an unbiased fashion, you can actually get people to change their, to to understand why it's a good thing. And so basically, you know, my family still asked me, why do I go on Fox News? I'm on Fox News the other week. My view is I'm a believer in the truth. And the truth is that if people understand this law, if they're willing to be open-minded to understand it, they will like it. And my, I just want to crack that door open. I want to, I'm willing to bang my head against the door as hard as it takes to crack that door open and to get people to understand what this law is and the benefits it delivers for our country. And you know, it's been enormously personally costly for me, but you know, it's it's what matters, which is basically it's it's rare that you know. You can actually get the outcome you want by speaking truth. Often you have to be biased or kind of spin things to get the outcome you want. You don't have to do the Affordable Care Act. If you just talk about it honestly, it leads to the outcome you want. And I just, that's what I view my job as.
1: Well, you know, I'm not going to defend or or judge you for those comments, and certainly not this far out. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all say things in private in certain situations that we wouldn't want elsewhere. Um, even in our own homes, we may not want our neighbors hearing what we're saying. You know, when I watched these videos, I saw the blowback you got. Um, I had to wonder, would, you know, would this have an effect on other researchers? You know, maybe give them pause whether they wanted to get involved in policymaking. It doesn't even have to just be healthcare. It could be any number of issues. Do you, I mean, let's talk about any, you know, conversations you've had with other colleagues, but then in the world we live in today, where these sound bites are just run over and over and over again. I mean, just like a blooper in a baseball game. Um, Is that, you know, does that have a risk for people speaking honestly and getting involved in this process? What are your thoughts there?
0: No, no, I actually, uh, and and I'm glad you brought that up because what's funny is, as you mentioned, I've been on hundreds of TV, radio, speeches, There's video, there's hundreds of hours of video of me, and literally they've gone through it all and found this sort of one thing I said that was bad. Now they jumped on that, but the truth is, that thing I said was when I wasn't really paying attention, I was just with a bunch of academic buddies and wasn't really thinking about it, when I've been on TV and when I've, I've never been dishonest, but as long as you're careful and thoughtful, this won't happen. I just was careless and thoughtless. Meanwhile, it's the most, the greatest thing I've ever done with my life, I mean, Besides, like, getting married and having kids. It's the greatest thing I've ever done with my life. It's helping create this law that, you know, created insurance for millions of people and saved thousands of lives. I mean, I wouldn't give it up for anything. And basically, I think any it would be terrible if the lesson people took from this was they should not get involved in the real world, should not get out there and try to make a difference. I think that while I'm sorry this happened, A, I think it would have been totally avoidable. Uh... And B, even with all the negative that came out of it, I'm, I, 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 wouldn't try, I, I wouldn't trade my involvement in this for anything.
1: Well, I think that's a that's a good place to conclude because we're at the top of the hour here. Keith, you got any other questions or anything?
2: No. Um, I Thank you for uh, coming on and your, your candidness and, and also for this new work that you're doing. It's really uh, fascinating. Um, and I think it's going to open up a lot of interesting things, not only about care in general, but about the care to doctors because we're just getting to a point where we're starting to say, hey, doctors are human too. It'll be interesting to see you know, just the way we ignore the information and, uh, as patients. It's going to be a very interesting uh, follow-up article. I'll be looking forward to that. Excellent. Good. Well, thanks so much for taking the
1: time to chat. Jonathan, thank you. And really quick, um, we're going to put a link to this paper and some other resources online for, for people to read more. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any other ways for people to learn more about you or other works you'd like them to take a look at?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can link to my website, and also you should link to this defensive medicine paper. Uh, It just got published um, in the American Economic Journal. Um, Do you want me to just, like, send you a link to that or something?
1: That'd be great. Okay. Get that up there. Okay. And uh, Dr. Jonathan Gruber, uh, economist from MIT, we uh, thank you so much for carving out an hour with us. It It was a lot of fun. And everybody, wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time.
2: Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.